in the Advent season, and today we're talking about about peace. Um, so before we get into this, though, uh, you can go ahead and open up your uh, Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. But while you're doing that, uh, before we get into this, you know, in, in college, I went to a Bible college, so I took a lot of Bible classes, took several preaching classes, and we had to write a lot of papers and, you know, long uh, research things about piece uh, chapters of the Bible. And these papers had different sections on them. There was like the historical context, like Greek word study, literary style, uh, breakdown of the, the author and their, their styles. And then there's this final section that we would do called the application section. And wouldn't you believe it, that is the most difficult section uh, that you could possibly do. Because the, the natural tendency for people, um, most of the students, including myself, was the research part for the historical context, like super easy. You just open a book, you read a few things, you summarize it, and then you cite it wherever it was put. But what our teachers wanted us to do was to start having us think about when you read a passage and you learn about it, how to think about that passage having an impact on your life or how to respond to certain passages in the Bible, to start to think that way. Um, and when you start to think that way, the Bible starts to look a lot less like a piece of paper and more like a living document, something that has relevance for us even today. So keep that in mind as we cover today's passage concerning peace, uh, because I think that this uh, particular subject has a lot to do with our daily experience and walk with Christ. So um, Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 2 here. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, uh, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be dis destined for burning for the fire, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the immediate context of that passage is, uh, you know, Isaiah, prophet, speaking um, into a major political situation. There's, there's war, and it just it causes a lot of people to be worried. And then he tells them about this sort of uh, messianic figure, a child that will be born, and he will be called the Prince of Peace. Which, um, which is really interesting. Um, so, uh, as I said before, we're in the Advent season, and as we draw close to Christmas Day, each week we're covering what the coming of Jesus meant for people in his day and for us. It's, it's not exactly just the cute story we see in plays, um, even though we really like to put those on and just have a kind of remembrance. Uh, the coming of Jesus 
God in flesh was the single greatest event in history because from that point on, the world would never be the same, just like how Isaiah talked about. Um, and this week we're talking about peace. Peace is a central concept in the Christian faith. It appears all over the Old and New Testament. But when it comes to our own lives, they're not always peaceful. I mean, I don't need to <laughs> give too many examples, but you know, our, our, our lives are just full of many crazy and unpredictable seasons uh, that when we read something like Jesus being the Prince of Peace, it can just pass us by without actually causing us to stop and think about what that would mean for us. So this title, Prince of Peace, is so important to Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, and I think it's worth us unpacking and following its application as we know it from his ministry. So first of all, when I talk about peace, what am I talking about? I could be talking about a few different things. Uh, you could be talking about peace as a kind of, um, of calmness, peace as a, a way of life, uh, peace as a way of knowing, peace as faith, uh, peace amidst or after a time of war. Well, uh, thankfully, it doesn't really matter which particular aspect of peace I'm talking about. Jesus kind of uniquely encompasses all the aspects of peace. But I believe there is one particular area in our lives, uh, the majority of our lives, where we've not let Jesus kind of be the conqueror of. And it's one place um, we have not really allowed him to establish peace. That's in the area of restless expectation. And uh, slide or as you may know it, anxiety. Yeah, Anxiety is the thing that destroys you if you lose your job. It's the thing that keeps you up at night when you wonder if you can afford to send your kid to college. It's what causes you to panic when your marriage is in trouble, and it's the thing that gnaws at your conscience when you just don't know what to do. And throughout our lives, we will, fi we will fight an almost daily battle against our anxieties, and unfortunately, we often do this entirely without Jesus. Jesus promised a life free of anxiety. He promised one of peace uh, lived out with him. And today I want to talk about what this life of peace looks like. And as a result, I want us to take this knowledge and begin to live out the life that was promised to us, one free of anxiety. So it's important to note, too, I'm not saying that we should live a life free of worry or trouble because some of our worries are pretty natural. If you lose your child at the mall <laughs> and you start to panic, that's probably a healthy and natural worry. Um, first, you should check the clothing racks. But, um, you know, it, so beyond that, though, what I'm wanting to talk about is a life lived out in full faith and trust in God in face of any circumstances. So an important uh, thing to talk about when you're talking about this kind of peace is uh, the word calmness. And uh, if you go to the next slide. When I say calmness, uh, in this particular passage, I'm not, or in the biblical concept of, of calmness, I'm not really talking about like a mantra kind of calmness. Uh, it's not the kind of calmness that when you uh, that, that you learn a lot of breathing techniques for, or you meditate, uh, do long stretches for. Um, 
that's more of a uh, kind of foreign concept to the Bible. But weirdly enough, I think it's what most people associate with the word calmness when they hear it. But I'm not trying to say that that's a bad way to think about calmness. In fact, it actually does work, but it provides, and it provides uh, the perfect captions for Instagram pictures. If you go to the next slide, you know, you've got trust in God and the chaos of the storm and God is good all the time in the midst of your storm. You know, you've seen that thing all over Instagram. I've posted pictures with that kind of stuff on it. Um, I think there's still one up on my Facebook wall. Um, but may I suggest to you today that this form of peace is mostly psychological. I say this because you can go to a number of counselors and through reordering your thoughts, breathing exercises, anyone can have this kind of peace, but it's momentary. It helps you in that one moment and then it fades away. Um, it might help you when you're preparing for an interview or recovering from something bad that happens, but it kind of comes up short when really bad things happen, like when a loved one passes away. When life gets truly difficult, as it inevitably does, no amount of meditation is going to help you. Uh, the kind of calmness that I'm talking about has something closer to do with uh, the Greek word uh, hesukia. I hope I didn't butcher that. I took Greek classes, but <laughs> it's always uh, eluding me how to pronounce some of these. Uh, but if you go to the next slide, so the, the kind of calmness that is communicated in the word hesukia is not really a meditative calmness. Um, I have a picture of a phalanx, kind of violent, but the kind of calmness that they're talking about is the sort of like focus and trust that you have in the midst of a, uh, of a battle. And this is a phalanx. So uh, the idea of a phalanx is these overlapping shields and the guy next to you and behind you um, all work together in a unit to keep you safe. And uh, absolute trust and confidence was needed for this thing to work. And those, shoulders, or those soldiers uh, would have each other's backs. So, um, both of these ways of thinking about calmness are very different. One is meditative, it is an attempt to convince the body to feel a certain way, and the other has more of a, uh, more of a substance to it, that there is something that gives rise to your calm state. It's not a humming and breathing technique, it's a real tangible reason for being calm in a serious situation. So, true calmness has substance. Say that with me. True calmness has substance. So what am I talking about exactly when I say peace, the word peace? So again, when I say peace, I could be talking about a couple of different things. I can tell you one thing I don't mean though, and I don't mean uh, this. Next slide. Yeah. <laughs> peace, man. Peace, bro. Probably um, more familiar too. Uh, people who grew up in the 70s, but, you know, I think it's the general idea is still kind of around today. Uh, so here's one way to understand the kind of peace that Jesus wants us to live under. And there are some brilliant pastors that think that this is probably the way to go with this. Um, anybody know the pastor Greg Boyd? 
yeah, he's a, he's a popular pastor up in, um, in Michigan. And I like some things he says, you know, disagree with some things he says. But he really comes down hard on this um, living a life of peace as refusing to participate in violence. Like, I mean, he is very adamant that, uh, that the gospel is about changing your life so that you become a pacifist. Um, and not that I disagree that Christians are generally supposed to be nonviolent, but I think this is just a little too narrow a view of peace. Uh, your, your refusal to participate in kind of violent behavior does not mean that other people can't. Um, and sometimes you may actually be required to defend yourself. So I think it's just a little too narrow, and I think it takes that idea of peace a little too literally. But another way to understand the word peace is to imagine a kind of circumstance in the Bible that usually brought about peace. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, for um, the nonviolent <laughs> understanding of peace, a lot of times it was brought about through violence or victory. Um, complete and total victory uh, in the Bible and throughout history, unfortunately, um, was the surest way of bringing about peace. So um, the good thing about that, though, is that uh, when it comes to turmoil and, and sin and the things that have bound you up and really turned you away from God. In John 16:33, some of you may have this memorized, but you can go to the next slide. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Yeah, I have overcome the world. Uh, Jesus' victory over sin has brought about peace. Death has been conquered, and there's no second-guessing that fact. So how does this relate to calmness? Remember when I said that calmness needs, true calmness needs substance, yeah. Well, the substance of our faith is the cross, the resurrection, and the life we live with Jesus. This kind of peace promised to us is literally a way of living. Jesus' birth ushered in a new era of peace, the arrival of a righteous king. So I kind of have this this thing against most modern commentaries. Anybody ever cracked open a, a like a modern commentary? I I think they're useful. They provide a lot of great information, but they're not exactly uh, helpful when you just want to understand how does this apply to me? Like, <laughs> what is a what does this really mean? So it's, sometimes it's more helpful to go back to some older commentaries. I especially like uh, John Calvin's commentaries because. They had a really excellent understanding of how the gospel um, changes your life, and they could trace that all throughout Scripture. And because they didn't have uh, their tenure at stake at a university, they felt a little more um, at liberty to say some things that they thought. Um, so I like how John Calvin kind of uh, summarizes the uh, passage in Isaiah when he talks about the Prince of Peace. So it says, the Prince of Peace, this is John Calvin speaking. Uh, this is the last title, actually it's me speaking, but it's John Calvin who wrote it. So <laughs> if, it was, if it was John Calvin speaking, none of you would understand him. It'd be in, in Latin or French or something. Um, so this is the Prince of Peace. This is the last title 
and the prophet declares by it that the coming of Christ will be the cause of full and perfect happiness, or at least of calm and blessed safety. Keep, keep that in mind, calm and blessed safety. In the Hebrew language, peace often signifies prosperity, for of all blessing, not one is better or more desirable than peace. The general meaning is that all who submit to the, to the dominion of Christ will lead a quiet and blessed life in obedience to him. Hence, it follows that life without this king is restless and miserable. Remember, we talked about anxiety. But we must also take into consideration the nature of this peace. It is, this, it is the same with that of the kingdom, for it resides chiefly in the conscious. Otherwise, we must not be engaged, uh, sorry, otherwise we must be engaged in incessant conflicts and liable to daily attacks. Not only, therefore, does he promise outward peace, but that peace by which we return to a state of favor with God, who were formerly at enmity with him. Justified by faith, says Paul, we have peace with God. That's Romans 5.1. Now when Christ shall have brought composure to our mind, our minds, the same spiritual peace will hold the highest place in our hearts, so that we will patiently endure every kind of adversity, and from that same fountain will likewise flow outward prosperity, which is nothing else than the effect of the blessings, uh, blessing of God. That's just good stuff, man. <laughs> He's, ah, oh, man. Uh, I'm going to skip down a little bit because I realize this is a really long quote. I get a little too excited about the, uh, the quote here. But uh, you skip down a little bit. He, he kind of goes through a little bit of, a, uh, of an application, like what I was talking about early, earlier although he's a lot better at it than I was. Um, when we need counsel, he says, let us remember that he is the counselor. When we need strength, let us remember that he is mighty and strong. When new terrors spring up suddenly every instant, and when many deaths threaten us from various quarters, let us rely on that eternity of, of which he is with good reason called the Father. And by that same comfort, let us learn to soothe all temporal distresses when we are inwardly tossed by various tempests and when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences. Let us remember that Christ is the, is the Prince of Peace and that it is easy for him to allay our uneasy feelings. So in summary, that was a long quote, I know. Thank you for sticking with me. Uh, if you go to the next slide. So in summary, what, what John Calvin is saying here is basically this. Christ is the substance of trust. We turn to him in our trials. Turning to Christ brings all our worries to the Father. Therefore, on this basis, we have peace in all circumstances. So in order to understand that too, um, I need to kind of go into what exactly anxiety is. Uh, so if you go to the next slide. So you remember what he said, that a life without the Lord is, is restless and miserable. And um, yeah, these are some pictures that I found, I think, kind of really uh, illustrate that point. And, and, you know, just to take a quick aside, anxiety is not just for people to have anxiety as a disorder. I think this is stress and things like that plague us, like, constantly. Um, so it's not... It's not like it's uncommon for everybody to feel these kind of things. Um, anxiety, though, is our most restless state. It's a feeling of imminent expectation of the unknown. 
Um, that's the best way I can kind of describe it. The feeling that any day the bank could come take your house for unpaid, bill, unpaid bills, the feeling that a company is being fired from a job and the unsureness about what to do next, it makes us immobile, indecisive, worrisome, panics us, frightens us. It's actually our most unnatural state before the fall of man. Um, when I was a child, I think it's a good way to kind of illustrate um, kind of our response to um, anxiety. But when I was a child, it, I would get lost in theme parks sometimes. Anybody else kind of have that experience? <laughs> um, if you were a child when that happened, you can kind of remember the immediate state of panic that you went into when you couldn't find where your parents were. There's lots of people shuffling around and you, you, you just start to worry. You don't know what to do. Uh, your, maybe your palms get sweaty. Some people, maybe you start crying. I, I don't remember. Did I cry ever when that happened? <laughs> maybe once or twice. Um, and then sometimes you think you find your parents and you go up and hug their leg and it's not your parents. <laughs> that, that happens sometimes to me. Um, but, but you know what's also really memorable about those times is that, that's, that feeling of relief that you felt when you finally found them again. Because in that moment, your worry subsides and you know everything's going to be okay, that you're safe once again. And I think that we have an analogous relationship with, with the Father. In the, in the Gospels, Jesus chastises his disciples for pushing away children, but Jesus actually invites them in. And it says in uh, Mark 10, 13 through 16, you can go to the next slide. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant to them and said, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's a pretty, pretty strong command there. Um, I remember when we studied Greek too, the, the way he says you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven is like a double negative, and that doesn't cancel out in Greek. That's like a, a double negative. You, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and so he takes them in his arms, blesses them, laying his hands on them. So any request, any fear, any worry, any anxious thought can be taken to the Father in prayer. And these requests are not only heard, but they are literally carried by Jesus straight to the Father. And I'll kind of illustrate that in a second. But because of Jesus, you're able to be in the immediate presence of the Father in prayer. It's hard to truly paint what that sensation is like. The closest I can come to that is how um, it is when you're lost as a child and when you finally find your parent. You can embrace them and feel such profound relief because you feel safe. I think that's why Jesus says to be like children, because we must turn to Jesus in all our trials, and you are then carried straight to the Father, a place of acceptance where all worries subside. And now that I'm a husband and a father of a beautiful corgi, you can see my mom's face getting all... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, you didn't tell me. You told me at church on the stage. I'm just 
I can just see it all. It's a, it's a movie playing in my head. Um, so I, I have worries just like anybody else in this room. Uh, right now I'm taking a, a slight break from school. <laughs> um, I'm currently unemployed. Uh, school loans are getting to be due. Just like all of us, you know, especially around the holidays, there's so much to be done and so little resources to accomplish it. But in all circumstances, I know that I have access to the one who orders the universe. I can bring my cares straight to him. And this is really uh, what I'm getting at. A life of peace is lived by one who engages in a prayerful life. One who communicates with the Father. And to illustrate this, there's a really great example um, in Exodus 2. I won't read the whole passage because it's kind of long. But there are times in the Bible... And there's a couple um, areas that I can think of off the top of my head where, where God does not respond unless that person first asks him or first does something. Um, in Exodus 32, the Israelites turned against God, worshipped idols. It was so bad that um, God told Moses, like, look, these people are so rebellious. They're doing awful and terrible things. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to wipe them out and we'll restart the Israelites through you, like in your family. We'll, we're just going to do that. We'll let them kind of fall to their, uh, to their own desires. And I'm just going to restart it with you. Moses responds to this by interceding on the Israelites' behalf. And he says, if you destroy them, then destroy me too. And because of this intercession by Moses, God does not destroy the Israelite people. And he continues to bless Moses and the Israelites on their way to the promised land um, and uh, their journey to the promised land. God, God knew that Moses would intercede, but he responded with grace only as a result of Moses pleading with him. For us, Jesus stands to intercede for us. He's actually there pleading with the Father on our behalf. So how many people know that that's some great representation? You, you really can't get better than that, um, even if you know the best lawyer. That's, that's about as good as it gets, honestly. Um, so, you know, don't, don't come to the table and say that God doesn't listen to prayer. He did all this extra work for us, uh, coming down in a human form, dying on the cross, just so that we could have absolute confidence that God is listening. But one of the issues uh, can be kind of our human will versus God's will. And if, um, actually, I don't know if I have a slide for this. Okay, so I'm just going to illustrate it. <laughs> uh, so how many people here have looked at the past and seen some decision that you made and you just kind of think to yourself, wow, I could have done that a lot better. <laughs> I could have just not made that decision or um, walked away or maybe done it a little bit nicer, spoke to someone a little bit nicer. Uh, see, that's, that's the issue, ultimately. We don't have foresight. We can't see what kind of things tomorrow will bring based off the decisions that we make today. But it's incredibly easy to worry about what we can't control. And that's kind of the root of anxiety that I was talking about earlier. It's like this restless expectation of what hasn't happened yet. Um, but what good is it to worry if it's not in our hands really anyways? God can see what tomorrow will bring for you. He knows it right now. And based off that knowledge, he is always acting in your best interest. Now, why am I saying this? 
Well, because when we are actively praying for something and that thing doesn't happen, it doesn't mean that God is trying to torture you. It just means that maybe that particular thing is not in our best interest. Even though we can't see why it's not in our best interest, we can trust that God is always working to order situations to be in our best interest. But what is our best interest? Our best interest is ultimately communion, relationship with the creator of the universe, and whatever brings us closer to God who created us, giving him glory. Nothing gives him more pleasure than for us to relinquish that sense of control over to him, to say that we trust him no matter what happens. So when we give control over to him, we make room for miracles to happen. If I asked God for a certain position, I went to the interview, but then I stayed up all night being anxious, worrying about whether the interview went well or whether I bombed it, whether I need to keep looking for other jobs. I haven't exactly relinquished control over to him. Uh, and, and what about my worrying is actually helping the situation? Worse, in my worry, I get so wrapped up in what I can do that I completely forget about God working in that situation. And then I might even be tempted to take credit for getting the job if it does happen the way I want. You know, you, you worried about it so much, and that kind of provides you good feedback on yourself that something you did was right, you know? Sorry, I lost my place here. Okay, but that's not really what, how God wants us to think. He wants us to think like this. And you say, in those circumstances, if you end up getting the job or the right thing happens, God, look what you have done to give me such an amazing opportunity. Or if I don't get the job, it's not because I'm a worthless individual, but that particular opportunity was not right for me, or the timing was wrong, or the multitude of reasons. Maybe I wasn't even ready for it. Regardless of what it was, God has now given me a gift by denying me that job because he has given me an opportunity to turn to him in faith and say, God, I don't know why I didn't get this job, but I trust you, and where do I go from here? God loves to give us those types of opportunities because 99.999999% of the time, things don't go the way that we want them to or exactly the way we want them to. I mean, oh my gosh, how many times have you gone to McDonald's and you think that you made a very simple order and then you get the order and it's just not right? <laughs> I mean, uh, I can't tell you how many times I have become a charitable donor to McDonald's when I order a sausage and egg McMuffin and I get it and there's no egg in it. That's a $2 donation to <laughs> McDonald's every time that happens. Because it jumps me right to the dollar menu. Um, but it, it's, it's just so common, you know, like from the little things to even the big things. Um, that's, that's one reason that uh, prosperity thinking, uh, I should have put, it, put a picture of uh, the book, the, the Secret, but that's one reason that, the, that prosperity thinking is so totally against the gospel. Because prosperity thinking is all about making us rely on ourselves and trying to convince ourselves that we can change things. And it makes us rely less on Jesus and more on, our, on, on just our own abilities. 
And instead of asking Jesus for things, um, asking him for jobs and stuff, we just try to work and make things happen. Um, it's a silly way of life because most of the time you'll be wasting your effort trying to hypnotize yourself into thinking that things will get better for you. Because sometimes they just won't. I mean, you will have seasons where they will be tough. And no amount of hypnotism is going to, to fix those circumstances. Um, so the root of anxiety is trying to wrestle with the unknown. So what we need to do now is to stop doing that. Um, stop wrestling, trying to control the unknown, what might happen. Because uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, um, next slide, Matthew 6, I didn't put the 6 there, but uh, 26 through 27, he says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his, his stature? So, so stop this endless cycle of anxiety, and you'll save your hair. And um, I hope so, I promise. Um, so we need to stop this in the cycle of anxiety, and I'll invite the worship team back up. When you pray, Jesus literally carries your request straight to the one on which the universe, universe hangs. You don't have to sit on the phone uh, for hours and hours trying to reach somebody like an insurance agent because he's available to you right now, right this very moment. And that's what it means for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace not because he brings us a feeling of peace, but that there's no circumstance where you end up on the bottom. Because of Jesus, our great intermediary, we are brought to the King. There's no serious battle raging that has not already been won. And if you'd bow your heads and pray with me for a minute. So as we, as we pray, I just want you to kind of dwell on that. Uh, what areas of my life have I just been so obsessed with controlling the circumstances of that I'm just taking all the credit for it and I'm not giving any to, to Jesus? And where in that situation can I instead turn to Jesus, turn to him for that inner peace that he brings about our circumstances, that he's ultimately looking out for our best interest. He's ultimately looking out for for us and what makes us safe and um, uh, just to be able to rest in his presence. Um, so yes, uh, think about those things as we pray. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for this season, Lord, um, the opportunity to remember all that you have done for us, all that your, your son has done for us, the incredible sacrifice that he made um, Lord, the incredible gift that you've given us in, in the gospel. Um, we just want to spend this season turning back to you, uh, learning to turn away from the worries and anxieties of the world that we just wrap ourselves in all day. Uh, Lord, we want to turn to you, turn to peace, turn to uh, calmness in the face of all our anxieties and circumstances. Um, Lord, and we just ask that uh, throughout this week and the rest of this month, that continues to be our main focus. And in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.